From the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Schuck. Religion for Life explores the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. This week, my guest is Dr. Howard Zare. He's the Distinguished Professor of Restorative Justice at Eastern Mennonite University in Harrisonburg, Virginia. He's widely known as the grandfather of restorative justice. He's been working on restorative justice for decades, the author of many books, The Little Book of Restorative Justice, Doing Life, Reflections of Men and Women Serving Life Without Parole, and Critical Issues to Restorative Justice. He is speaking with me via Skype from Harrisonburg, Virginia. Welcome, Professor Zare, to Religion for Life. Thank you. Nice to be here with you. Just a basics question. What is restorative justice, and how does that differ uh, from the justice that we commonly see in the criminal justice system in the United States? Well, that's a good question. The, the restorative justice as a term has gotten so popular that all kinds of things are being called restorative justice today, some of which aren't very restorative, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, it's a... It's a call to think about what we mean by justice, what we want out of justice, and to rethink some of our assumptions. Our, our everyday concepts of restorative justice, are, I mean of justice, are shaped by the criminal justice system. And the simplest way to put that is to say that criminal justice revolves around three questions. It says, what laws or what rules have been broken? And that's, by the way, the same for schools. What laws, what rules are broken, and who did it, and then what do they deserve? Mm. tends to be a very, it's organized around making sure people get what they deserve. And if you'll notice, there's not much for victims in there because it's really all, it's offender-oriented. It's around what do we do with the offender, what does the offender deserve? Restorative justice tries to change the questions. It says, who's been hurt in this situation, and what are their needs? And whose obligations are they? In other words, it's a a needs-based concept of justice that starts by trying to understand the harm and address the harm and then tries to figure out what the obligations are for in repairing that harm and whose obligation it is and what the process is needed for that. So whereas the criminal justice system sidelines victims, after all, it's the the federal government versus... In the Timothy McVeigh case where I was involved, it's the federal government versus Timothy McVeigh, and the victims had to actually go to Congress to get the right to sit in on their own trial uh, because they're not part of the equation. Restorative justice says what really matters is the harm that's been done. Harm is going to generate needs, so victims become very central in that. And then whose obligation is it to try to address those harms? Uh, And that's where the offender, it redefines really the meaning of of uh, accountability, because it said instead of accountability being defined as you take your punishment, it's saying accountability is we want you to understand the harm you did, and we want you to take responsibility for that harm. Talk a little bit more about the role then of the victim in restorative justice. How, how would it play out in in our criminal system if restorative justice was the principle? If restorative justice was the principle, then the first thing we would do regardless of whether an offender has been identified or whether uh, all the wonderful restorative processes that we have are appropriate, we would start by working with that victim to try to help them define their needs and meet their needs. Uh, That's where we'd start. Now, the restorative justice is often known for a set of practices that allow victims and offenders who are willing to meet to do that. 
There's a variety of models for doing that. We can talk about it if you want. Uh, but the, we, the way we got started in this whole thing is we realized that victims had all kinds of questions that only the offender could answer, and they had things they needed to tell that offender about what they did to their life. And so, and we needed, we knew that offenders needed to hear that, that, that they have all these denial mechanisms they use to, to insulate themselves from the consequences of what we do. And then we put them in a legal system where the first principle is make the state prove it. So no matter how guilty you are, your attorney says, plead not guilty. And then we put them in prison where there's no culture of taking responsibility. I sometimes tell judges it's like we, we invented, we designed the system to reinforce the very mechanism that offenders used to get in trouble in the first place. Hmm. So we wanted, we wanted to hold offenders accountable by helping them to face up to what they did and then to try to make it right in some way. So the most common practices, the best known practices, are allow a variety of different models that allow victims and offenders to meet with a trained facilitator with plenty of preparation and so forth. So they get a chance the victim gets a chance to say what it did to their lives, to ask questions. If the offender uh, gets to hear these things, they may want to, may need to explain what's happened to them, and then they work out an agreement of some sort. Those are the best main models. But restorative justice is really a continuum of practices that takes the principles of restorative justice and tries to apply them as fully as possible. And one of those principles is that what matters so much is the harm and the needs that come out of it. And for victims, we ought to be trying to work with that right from the start. I've done a lot of work with victim issues over the years now. And I've come, you know, when we're victimized, not just by crime, but a variety of other things, there's a variety of needs we have. And some of those we need to go to the pastor, to our therapist, our congregation, our family to, to address. But there's a cluster of what I call justice needs. And when victims, when I find victims who are really, really stuck in their, in their trauma and anger, often it's because there's been no opportunity for them to meet those needs. And the converse is when I find that we meet these needs to some degree in a justice process, that people are able to move on their journeys uh, more easily. And those needs are around information like they have lots of questions. What happened? Why did you do it? Why did you do the things you did? What were my daughter's last words? All kinds of questions. They need a chance to tell their stories, their truth. They need other people to hear those stories. They need to be engaged. I mean, what someone has done when they're offended against is someone has taken power away from them. And when someone breaks into your house or holds you a nice point, knife point, they've taken power away to some extent. But when you can't get them out of your head, when you dream about them, when you have when this fears that wash over you, you feel like you're still out of control. So people need to be engaged. They need to be re-empowered. And finally, they need to be vindicated in some way. And that is to have the balance restored, to know that they weren't responsible. Someone else is responsible for it. Uh, that there was not a shameful thing that they experienced, but rather it took courage to live through it. Uh, that's a whole big topic. But what I'm, what I'm trying to say is there's a group of needs that I think victims have that a justice system ought to address. And unfortunately... The legal system does it very poorly. In fact, it often re-traumatizes. Judith Lewis Herman, a leading from Harvard, a, a leading uh, expert on trauma, says if you set out to design a system to, uh, to create post-traumatic stress for victims, you couldn't do better than a court of law. 
It just doesn't address those things. The idea of punishing the perpetrator makes justice for the victim doesn't feel like true restorative justice. Well, it often doesn't feel like justice. I mean, that's the only option we give them. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like a friend of mine who used to be a state-level state, state level victim advocate in the governor's office used to say, you know, it's like that old game where you have door number one or door number two. You offer door number one, you know, you can have the person punished or, or nothing. Well, what they really want is door number three, uh, but they're not offered that. And so what we're trying to do here, we're trying to say the legal system is you need to offer more options. You need to take them into account from the start. Do, where do you see, uh, as you look at the criminal justice system today in the United States, do you see trends uh, in which this is happening towards restorative justice, and, and what areas specifically are in need of reform? Well, we, we have lots of areas in need for reform. Uh, one of the biggest issues on our minds these days is this issue of mass incarceration, uh, the, the huge number of people we have in prison and the disparities. I mean, it's really clear that this is coming down hardest on people of color. And Michelle Alexander has argued that it's actually a new form of Jim Crow, the old Jim Crow laws. And I, I think it's a very convincing argument. So we have lots of work that needs to be done. Um, at this point, even though this, I mean, the first cases were done in Canada, and then I and others started the first program in the United States back in the late 1970s. And there are programs all over the country, but actually many countries in the world are, are ahead of us now in implementing this in significant ways. But even here in the U.S. today, there are lots of communities where these things are happening. Colorado has embedded these options into its legislation. Uh, a number of other states have done that to some extent. Uh, Minnesota has lots of different things going. So there are lots of, lots of programs going. A lot of them are, are community-based, and that's the way I think it ought to be. I'm really... I really don't believe in justice from the top down. I think it ought to be done from the community up. And so I've spent a lot of my career helping communities decide what they need from justice and then organize to get it. To, to, and so they've adapted uh, restorative justice to the needs in the context of their own community. So we have lots to do. It, it's gotten very popular. I mean, in the last number of years, restorative justice has become a buzzword in many circles. The actual implementation of it here in this country is behind that, unfortunately. But there are a lot of promising things going on here in the U.S. Well, I was wanted to talk a little about about the mood. Um, I, I I I sense general a general a, a mood that well, you put criminals away and they deserve it, and that's the end of the story. That ideas such as forgiveness or restoration are, are nice, but it's uh, really just soft on crime. Uh, how do you respond to that? Well, first of all, that actually, the mood is swinging back away from that now, oh, okay. some partly due to a realization of the concerns around the death penalty and particularly around mass incarceration. There's, there's a whole conservative organization called Right on Crime that's arguing for reducing our use of prisons and so forth. Uh, so it's, we're not in as punitive a mood as we were um, earlier. And I think that's helpful. Um, it's not. For one thing, I, I'm always uncomfortable with conflating forgiveness with restorative justice. Many people mm -hmm. do that, and it's part of why victims have been resistant. Restorative justice is not about forgiveness. It's about meeting victims' needs. It's about holding offenders accountable. It's about engaging those people who have a stake in this situation in the resolution of it. If they choose forgiveness, that is up to them. And some do, 
or some move in some direction, but this is not an effort to get people to forgive. And I think that's an important distinction. Sure, people may mm -hmm. choose that. A lot more people choose that route than those who would just go through the regular legal system. But this is not a forgiveness program. And I think it's just that we, the media particularly likes to pick up on this forgiveness. Forgiveness is a big popular topic right now. And we're constantly having to separate ourselves from that. Restorative justice is not a soft option. I mean, you think about going back in the ideal form and facing the person you harm. I mean, I can tell you numerous cases where we had uh, gang members, for instance, and others who were now going to have to go back and face their victims who were so frightened by the experience that we had to postpone until they could get themselves together. Uh, in our surveys, people who have gone through jail experiences and then do this say, you know, it was easier to go to jail than it is to phase up the person I harm. Hmm. It's not an easy option, uh, even though people, you know, it's, it's always funny, it's, I always chuckle, police officers around the world, you say restorative justice, they start talking about singing kumbaya and holding hands. <laughs> it's not what it is. It is just not what it is. It's about, you know, our, our society is so individualistic and so rights-oriented. We don't very much talk about responsibilities. And restorative justice reminds us that we are interconnected. We have responsibilities to each other. When I harm somebody, I have a responsibility. It's one of the exciting things. Uh, one of the biggest growth areas in this country is schools. Schools are in large numbers looking at and adopting restorative disciplinary processes because they realize they want young people to learn how to live together. They want them to learn that their actions have impacts on other people, that they need to take responsibility for it, that there are ways to resolve these kind of things when they happen in ways that are community and life-giving. So schools are one of the most, one of the biggest growth areas and one of the most exciting areas right now. Well, restorative justice is, is uh, as you're talking, is, is not really just about criminal justice. It's about a way of life. It's about a way of interconnecting as people. It is really. I mean, when we started this back in the late 70s and the mid-70s, we were just trying to figure out we knew that offended, the offenders weren't being encouraged to take responsibility. We knew the victims were being left out. We were trying to address deficiencies that we saw in the legal system. But, and um, it, it took other people sometimes to realize this has lots of other applications. I mean, in the workplace, in schools. And as you said, many people are now saying it's really a way of life. It's a way of life that reminds us of some core values. I like to say that the three the three values underlying restorative justice are three R's, respect, responsibility, and relationship. And it's about, it's about reminding us of those things. So yeah, many people are now saying it actually is a way of life. Uh, on my blog a while back, I wrote 10 principles of, for trying to live restoratively. And it's interesting, people have been, just got an email, uh, email from a law professor in Japan who's using it in his class and his students are putting it on their refrigerators and so forth as a guide to life. Uh, so, yeah, I think it has implications way beyond we ever, whatever, what we projected back in the 1970s. If you are just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Professor Howard Zare of the Distinguished Professor of Restorative Justice at Eastern Mennonite University, speaking with me via Skype, uh, talking in general about the issue of restorative justice. Uh, you are a professor at Eastern Mennonite University. The Mennonite uh, churches uh, are historically peace churches. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how your faith tradition has uh, shaped your understanding of restorative justice? 
Yeah, sure. It has it's obviously played a big part for me. I mean, most of the audiences I address now are secular audiences, so I often don't speak too explicitly about that. Although it's really interesting, I teach in a context where people come from all over the world of all different faiths, and mm-hmm. it's been really interesting as they go back, my Muslim students go back and find the restorative elements in their faith tradition and so forth. So that's that's been really encouraging. But yeah, it the, the first case that started all this is usually cited is a case in Elmira, Ontario in 1974 when, two, when a group of Christians had been meeting in the community trying to figure out how they do peace in their in their own communities. And Mark Yancey was a Mennonite probation officer and he came with this case and he said, what, what do I do with this? Uh, what had happened is that two young men had gotten drunk one night in this small town and they'd gone up and down the street vandalizing some 22 properties. And the town was really upset, as you can imagine. These kind of things didn't happen in that town. So their trust level had been really violated. And Mark came to this group and he said, okay, I have to do a pre-sentence report and you know what's going to happen. They're either these two kids are going to get a slap on the hand or they're going to go to jail. No way are they going to understand what they did. And meanwhile, these victims are all angry and wondering what's happened and so forth. And another Mennonite guy there named Dave Worth said, well, they ought to have to go back and face the people. Uh, so they suggested the judge, who first said he couldn't do it. And then on sentencing date, everybody's surprised. That's what he sentenced them to do. And Mark and Dave had never thought about how they were going to do it. They admit it was really primitive. They basically took these two guys, pushed them to the doors and said, now you go knock on the door, you announce you're the criminal, we'll be right behind you. And no idea. <laughs> they got facilitation, you know. And it was so successful. I mean, they got everything from the redneck with a beer, with tattoos and a, and a beer can who had been out actively looking for them. They got everything from that to the elderly Baptist woman who invited them in for tea and cookies. Uh, but it was so successful that that led to this whole this whole movement. I got involved. Uh, and I won't tell you the whole story, but in the in the late seventies, then as the idea came to Indiana, and as I started, well, first I got involved in doing it, uh, and then I began to try to explain what we were doing, and that led to the book Changing Lenses, where it was really I laid out. I, I'm sort of a from what I can reconstruct. I didn't invent the word restorative justice. I found it in uh, a book where it's kind of in a, a phrase thrown in among other phrases. But as I began to put this together to, to give a conceptual framework to what we're doing, I went, first of all, to the experience. We were, we were bringing victims and offenders together and they were having great success. But then I went to my Christian faith and I began to realize that this was the predominant theme in, in the Christian tradition. We often have focused on punishment, but actually the predominant theme is God doesn't give up on us, and we are called to, to relate health in healthy ways to each other. The word, the word shalom, I'm told, I never counted it, but shows up 350 times in the Old Testament alone. God is calling us to live together in right relationship with each other, with the Creator and the creation. And when something breaks shalom or makes it impossible, we need to do things to restore shalom. So to me, that in a simple term is the theological basis for it. I'm also, my PhD is in history, so I went back to my, what would be my indigenous tradition, the European tradition, and found that historically that's the way my ancestors and our ancestors resolved 
things as well. It was only when this legal system came in, and by the way, there's a whole thing we could do on that, that if historians are piecing this together, they're finding out that as the legal tradition, the legal system evolved, and the Bible was being reinterpreted, they sort of, a very bad mix of theology and, and the law ended up shaping this legal system. And then we went back and read the Bible through this legalistic, punitive lens. Hmm. And so much of the theological interpretation we have today is really <laughs> bad theology and bad law. But it was based on this, this kind of a hybrid that happened. Uh, the idea that God is this judge primarily. That God is this judge, is legalistic, that mm -hmm. Jesus died to, in some legalistic formula to set things right instead of seeing this as an effort to, to help us live in shalom, to, to live in right relationship with each other. So it caused me to go back to my own, to the biblical material and to my tradition and, and realize I had to rethink that. And then I found there's a number of theologians who are now going back with this lens and realizing they need to reinterpret their understanding uh, of the biblical tradition as well. Now, um, I am going. I am a, a Presbyterian minister, and I'm actually going to be a commissioner at uh, this summer's General Assembly. And, and one of the resolutions that's coming before the Assembly has to do with, um, changing directions with you a little bit, with the pro-profit prisons. Uh, right. and, and the resolution is to abolish uh, these private prisons. Would you agree with, that re with a resolution like that? I would agree with that. The problem is, I mean, when we're taking someone's liberty away, we shouldn't be doing this to private contractors. I know there's some theory around, you know, the Martin free market theory around using private, and there's places for private entrepreneurs, but holding people captive is not one of those. So in theory, I'm opposed to it, but also in practice, it's led to some really bad conditions because when the bottom line is money, you end up uh, taking shortcuts. And furthermore, what it does is it fuels this prison industry because you are paid on, on the basis of, of, of per capita on bids. You have full. And so what it's resulted in is a lobby effort to get more prisons and more prisoners. So it's, it's fueled this prison expansion in really unfortunate ways. I would also like to ask you about another issue, about capital punishment or the death penalty. I heard an advocate for abolishing the death penalty say that while someone might deserve the death penalty, the state does not have the moral authority to execute it. Uh, could you talk about that and, and, and in general how the death penalty relates to restorative justice? Well, I mean, that argument is, is, is probably right, but I think it goes beyond that. I can understand when someone who's lost a child says they want the death penalty. I mean, I, that, that I, can, I, I really understand. Uh, at the same time, my experience has been that it turns out not to be very satisfactory in the long run, that there are other things that people want, other needs that they have met. And if we meet those kind of needs, they might find things that are more satisfying in the long run. Um, if when a, when a murder occurs, if we could step in and begin immediately to work with the surviving family members and others to, to give them space to lament what happened, for all of us to lament what happened, to help them address their needs, to define their needs. Uh, I, I think we, we end up with a, with, a, with a lot of other more creative options than the death penalty. Um, the death penalty is, it, it really teaches the wrong lesson. I mean, it teaches that when someone harms you, you need to harm them back. And unfortunately, that's what our legal system generally teaches. Someone harms you, you need to harm them back. And as a deterrent, 
it assumes that the person who is going to commit a commit a murder is going to identify with the person being being killed in a, in a, in a death penalty and therefore be deterred. But unfortunately, a lot of people who are in that situation are not are not identifying with the person being punished. Uh, they they're identifying with the punisher. They're not. They're assuming I'm not going to be the one that's caught and so forth. The lesson they are often getting: it's when someone messes with you, someone harms you, you need to harm them. I was uh, hmm. one time I was leading a group, in, a restorative justice group in prison, and a guest in the show for that day. And we got there were a bunch of older lifers, life sentence prisoners, and there was a young guy who was really new, and they got to talking about the justice on the streets. And the old guy said, "You know when." When uh, we were out in the street, if someone did some disrespect with us, we had to fight. We didn't have to win, but we had to fight. Uh, and he said, oh, you are so out of touch. He said, if someone disrespects me, I have to waste them. He says, there's no other way I can survive on the street. I have to, I have to go after their life. Uh, and that's the justice of the street. And that's what we're reinforcing when we do things like the death penalty. And is that really what we want to be teaching? It's just there's just no credible evidence that death penalty deters uh, crime. And we can't even, we have tried to figure out whether it's satisfying to victims, but we haven't even, as far as I know, we had a conference on this a few years ago. We couldn't find research that was clear on this or not. We find a lot of anecdotal research, much of which said that in the end it wasn't very, it was, it was something, but it wasn't very satisfying. But I don't think we really have research on that. So I don't think we, we really know how satisfying it is for people who lost a family member. Um, you have um, been involved in this work uh, for decades as a teacher and author, um, and, and you've seen uh, different groups um, uh, continue on on your work. But where, where do you see this work really happening, and how might people who are listening to this program today uh, be involved in issues of restorative justice? Oh, well, good question. The uh, there is a, na a national organization, National Association of Restorative Justice. I think it's called. It's a new. It's a new organization that's trying to bring together academics and practitioners. Um, a good website would be restorativejustice.org. Restorativejustice.org uh, tries to keep up to date with with the literature and and what's happening. There's lots of material, reading material out uh, on this beyond mine, but the little book of restorative justice uh, that I wrote or Changing Lenses, which is my original book on this, has a study guide in the back for communities and churches and others that want to use it. The best way often to start is to get a small group together in a community. Uh, what I find is in most communities, there's people, professionals in the legal system who are really frustrated with what they're doing and looking for new approaches, looking for a way to, re to rethink what they're doing. Pulling some of those people in is a good way to go. Uh, it's, you know, it's really common sense. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. When I talk to grocery clubs and so forth, that, I mean, you, it, it amazing. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's not rocket science. It, people always come and say, well, that's what my parents did. You know, I stole some. And I had to go back and pay, face the person, give it back, say I'm sorry. That's really, that's really all we're talking about. Uh, it's, it's doing what most of us know is the right thing to do, but we haven't, we've somehow assumed when we jump to crime or to these other kind of institutional settings that we somehow can't apply what we inherently know we ought to be doing. Professor Zaret, thank you very much for your work and for your time for, and for being with me on Religion for Life. Thank you. It's been good to be with you. 
I'm John Shuck, minister of First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find more information about Religion for Life at religionforlife.com. Go there for links to podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, hear us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC in Emory, Virginia. Be well. Thank you.